Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to this year's IPS Northern Lecture Series by Mr. Patrick Daniel, our 11th SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Mr. Daniel will be delivering his second lecture titled Grappling with the Dark Side of the Internet, a Global Challenge. Following his lecture, Mr. Daniel will take questions from the audience in a Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Dr. Carol Soon, Head of Society and Culture and Senior Research Fellow at IPS. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. The lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto our IPS website and our social media platforms later. Please submit your comments at any time during the lecture through the Facebook comments. For our audience members here today, please step up to the mic during the Q&A session to ask your questions. And please also remember to put your phones to silent mode. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A session. We would also like to hear your views on the event. There will be a link in the feed at the end of the lecture, which you can click on to submit your feedback. So, without further ado, I would like to invite Mr. Patrick Daniel to begin his second lecture, titled Grappling with the Darkest Side of the Internet, a Global Challenge. Mr. Daniel, please. Good afternoon, friends and colleagues, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming today. Uh, let me start by sharing the outline of my second lecture today. It'll be in three parts. Uh, first part, I'll talk about, I'll, I'll review the milestones in the rise of the internet. Uh, second part will be the main uh, uh, part of my, my, my lecture today, and the focus is on the darker side. I'll have a little case study on digital advertising. I call it the beauty and the beast. And then part three, I really want to talk about what is the way forward for internet governance. It is a question because really it's, it's something that, that hasn't been uh, uh, decided. I should first make my usual declaration that I'm again speaking in my personal capacity, but I think I should also declare my interest as a long time member of the legacy media and also director of the Singapore Media Trust. In my first lecture, I had talked about the severe disruption that the legacy media had faced as a result of the rise of the big tech platforms. My second lecture is about the internet, which necessarily also covers the big tech players. Uh, but I'm putting aside today any competitive issues uh, between the legacy media and new media. I really want to step back to focus on the broader issue of internet governance, which I believe is an urgent public policy issue that affects us all. I genuinely believe that unless global the global governance model is reviewed, trust in the entire internet ecosystem will inevitably be seriously eroded. And the bigger danger is that any fallout will harm the wider financial and economic system. By way of introduction to my topic, I have a brief story to tell. In November of 2016, my wife and I were on a driving holiday in the US when the American presidential election was in full swing. This, this was Donald Trump uh, versus Hillary Clinton. 
On election day on November 8th, I drove from Chicago to a place called Door County on the, lake, on the shores of Lake Michigan. It was pretty much in the middle of nowhere. I stopped to fill some petrol and then I chatted with the cashier, a middle-aged lady. Have you gone out to vote, I asked her. And she said, yes. And without prompting, she volunteered that she had voted for Trump. Then she added, I can't bear that evil pedophile. I looked at her somewhat blankly, and she said, you haven't heard? Hillary Clinton is running a child sex ring in Washington, DC. It was, in fact, the first time I'd heard it, so, but I said to her, surely you don't believe that story. You bet I do, she shot back. It's all over the internet. I managed a smile, I took my change, and I left. When we reached our motel, I did a Google search. And sure enough, the story of Hillary and her satanic pedophile ring operating out of a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. was all over social media. And this was on election night, election day. But it was an obvious piece of fake news, or what I like to call willful misinformation. I recount this story to show a little bit of what I mean by the darker side of the internet. Just this one piece of willful misinformation that went viral, it was tweeted 1.4 million times. Might, have, might well have lost Hillary Clinton the election and made Donald Trump president. I remember watching Jake Tapper on CNN that evening as the, results, as the election results came in, he was at a complete loss as to how the entire polling profession got it so wrong. I think the internet's darker side played a part in that election result. How big, I don't know. And may have shifted the course of history a bit. But I'm running ahead of myself. I will come back to this subject a little later. Let me first recap the rise of the internet and the phenomenal impact it has had. The internet has changed everyday life for literally billions of people and taken human communication to an altogether new level. In that sense, it is the most far-reaching invention the world has seen. It has brought a whirlwind of benefits like no other. Previous centuries have, of course, seen transformative advances, in particular, the two industrial revolutions in the 18th and 19th centuries, driven by the steam engine and then electric power. The internet is a child of the third industrial revolution, also called the digital revolution, as it is marked by the pervasive shift to digital electronics, in particular, digital computing and communication technologies. I have a slide here on the milestones in the early development of the internet. Do take a moment to read it, as I won't be covering it in my text. Starts in 47 with the invention of transistors, then mainframe computers, 
and then this agency called ARPA, A-R-P-A, Advanced Research Projects uh, Agency, which was tasked with getting computers to talk. They succeeded in 1865. Uh, then they got a network up. 71, first invention, first email invented between the scientists. 73, it extended to 30 uh, mainframes. Um, then the uh, home computer, 75. 83 was when uh, the, the start of the internet with uh, transmission control procedures and the uh, domain name servers. And then in 1990, the World Wide Web. So this is the, the, the past before the internet was launched. I should explain at this point the terms internet and World Wide Web are often used interchangeably, but strictly they are different. The internet is the infrastructure that connects devices in the network. The World Wide Web is the way information is shared via the internet. But for simplicity, when I refer to the internet in my lecture, I include the World Wide Web. Uh, but when I do refer to the web, I'm referring specifically to the information sharing aspect of the net. So essentially, the internet has two parts, a global networking infrastructure that allows instant connectivity between devices, and number two, a system of instant access and sharing of information. But the internet has achieved much more than just connectivity and information sharing. It has sparked an explosion of creativity and innovations, including integration of many technology capabilities in unprecedented ways. This is the reason it has become such a popular and far-reaching phenomenon. Since 1983, when the internet started, and especially after 1990, when the web kicked in, the number of global internet users has exploded off the chart. The latest number of global internet users in 2021 was 4.9 billion, or 60% of the uh, world's total population. Not surprisingly, right from the start, the internet and the web created a boom in new opportunities for businesses and for investors too. In the 1990s, many internet-related companies, which were dubbed dot-coms, if some of you might remember, rushed to be listed on the stock exchange in stock markets around the world and saw their stock prices soar, making their young founders instant millionaires. This started the dot-com boom of the late 1990s, which later turned out to be a bit of a bubble. A major milestone of that era was the stunning takeover of Time Warner by America Online in January 2000 for 183 billion US dollars, an astronomical sum back then. It was a dazzling start to the new millennium, and I spoke about this in my last lecture, about how this deal affected the Singapore media. Between 1995 and 2000, the technology-dominated NASDAQ index rose from under 1,000 
to more than 5,000, but it came crashing down in 2001, and many dot-coms went bust. This was essentially an internet-generated global financial crash. But the strongest internet companies survived, reviewed their practices, and prepared to compete in a new economy, dubbed Web 2.0. A second wave of internet companies arose, led by the likes of Google, Amazon, eBay, Facebook. One feature of that period, especially in the mid-2000s, was the rush of mergers and acquisitions. In 2005, 2006 alone, Google purchased YouTube for 1.6 billion, 65 billion. eBay bought Skype for 2.6 billion. And News Corp bought MySpace for 580 million. During these two years alone, the internet economy grew more than it had during the entire dot-com boom. Looking back, the amazing thing about the internet phenomenon is that it happened in the space of just a few decades. If you take 1983 as a start, four decades. If you take the post-dot-com period, two decades. We are all fortunate to be living witnesses of this digital revolution and the information age. It is a revolution that shows no sign of slowing down. In fact, it looks to be speeding up even more. So, Hang on to your seats. Remember, we are just in the 23rd year of a new century and a new millennium. In fact, some writers are already saying we are entering the fourth industrial revolution. And what is this next industrial revolution? One definition I came across put it this way, quote, it is characterized by the fusion of technologies that is blurring the lines between the physical, the digital, and the biological spheres, unquote. I don't know about the biological part, but the blurring of the physical and the digital is enough to boggle us all. And I will speak about this in my third lecture on March 14th. I want to talk next about the phenomenal impact the internet has had. I'd like to do this again by showing you a series of charts. Total number of internet users worldwide, 4.9 billion, 60% of the population. Next one is the forecast of growth. By 2030, four out of five of the entire global population. Next one, number of users of social media platforms. Facebook, 2.5 billion. YouTube, 1.8 billion. I mean, these are massive numbers. Market cap of big tech companies. Amazon, 1.66 trillion. Google, 1.4 trillion. Facebook, 760 billion. So they're $2 trillion market cap companies among the big tech. Now, 2021 ad revenue of Google, I showed this in my first lecture, 210 billion US dollars. Facebook, 115 billion dollars. I mean, these are big sums. 
Investments in digital tech, total number of, I mean, the, the com by companies investing in transformative digital tech, in 2021 alone, $1.5 trillion. And that's forecast to go up to $2.8 trillion in 2025. So this is, these are the, the, the phenomenal impacts that the, the internet has had. I, I don't want to sort of, you know, uh, elaborate on that but these are the results. But there, there are two main features of the internet which I want to highlight. The first is the open nature of its architecture from the viewpoint of access. Except for China, which has imposed a tight firewall around the whole web, the World Wide Web, most other countries have kept the web open for its citizens. The open access has brought many benefits but one result has also been that there is no control over harmful or even unlawful content, as I will discuss shortly. A sensible middle road needs to be found, rather than an all-or-nothing approach. A second feature is that the internet is, by design, largely unregulated. There is no internet regulatory authority anywhere nor is there any formal self-regulation structure. This light-touch governance has also spilled over to the oversight of the internet companies, including the big tech platforms, whose reach is massive and hence has enormous power to do both good and harm. The US platforms are specifically given a remarkable blanket immunity with respect to third-party content in Section 230 of the U.S. Communications Decency Act 1996. And the section reads, No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Not the most elegant prose, but the meaning is clear. If you're a platform, somebody puts content on your platform, the platform owner is immune, gets immunity. These were, this, these, this is sometimes referred to, or quite often referred to as, the 26 words that created the internet. This immunity in section 23 is unique to the US. No one else, not the European nations, Canada, Japan, or any other countries, has a similar statute in their books. Because web, web platforms like Google and Facebook are global entities, it is difficult or even impossible for individual countries to regulate them. Another area of light touch governance especially in the US, is antitrust leniency when it comes to internet companies. I spoke earlier about the mergers and acquisitions in the mid-2000s. Since then, there have been many more large acquisitions by the internet giants, which I've listed here, all of which were approved expeditiously, even where anti-competitive concerns were prima facie evident. Now, what has happened is that this has led to supercharged growth in company size, market concentration, 
and massive stock market valuations. So what we have now are, is a new era of corporate barons with largely unregulated power, although there have been instances of large fines imposed on them too. Self-regulation by internet companies themselves is also almost non-existent. The high-profile exceptions were when Facebook and Twitter kicked Donald Trump off their platforms. The result is that the internet is still seen as a little bit of the wild west of profit-driven capitalism. Worse still, malevolent actors have exploited the open access and light-touch governance, and most get away lightly or go unpunished. And I'll discuss this darker side of the internet next. I should answer this first question uh, uh, first. Why am I focusing much of my lecture on the darker side of the internet? As I've explained, the internet has without doubt brought many benefits to five billion of the world's population, as well as to companies, investors, and the economy at large. But I want to shed light on the darker side of the internet because my position is that not enough is being done to address the abuses and exploitation by bad actors in the internet space. As I said at the start, I genuinely believe that the global governance model is in urgent need of a deep review. The bigger danger is that it must not trigger another dot-com crash. Also, I'm a big user of the internet myself, and I've been for many decades, so I am a fan. I'm a genuine fan. My message is simply this. We must collectively deal with the bad actors and restore trust and integrity. Let me list two specific concerns, and I'll then speak more about them. The first is the deluge of willful misinformation that I spoke of at the start of my lecture. This also includes extremism and even subversion on the internet platforms. Let me clarify that I'm not talking here about mere views and opinions, which everyone is entitled to hold and express. I'm talking about willful, factual misinformation. The second issue is the scams, frauds, and cybercrimes, which are now rampant in many parts of the internet. I will later uh, use as a case study the digital advertising ecosystem to show how a beautiful system is being corrupted by fraudsters. I will start with willful misinformation. The issue is the harmful content that is swirling around the internet. I come back again to the pedophile ring. I recently read an investigative piece in Rolling Stone magazine where the reporter followed the digital trail and actually identified the person who posted the fake news on her Facebook account under another name. Believe it or not, it was a 60-year-old attorney who practiced law out of a 
out of her home in Missouri. As I said earlier, in, within five weeks, her post was shared on Twitter 1.4 million times by a one-quarter million accounts. And of course, it was on all other social media as well. But nothing happened to her. And I presume she's still practicing law. But a 28-year-old man from North Carolina who read about the child sex ring drove all the way to the pizzeria in D.C. armed with an assault rifle hoping to rescue the kidnapped, the alleged kidnapped children. He found none but fired three shots, was arrested, charged, and he spent four years in jail. So one committed a crime, the other didn't. The issue, of course, is freedom of expression. No matter how false the information, no matter what damage it causes, or who ended up in jail, her freedom of expression was sacrosanct. Like it or not, that's the law in the US. So I then move to a related point. The reluctance of web platforms like Facebook to moderate content on their web platforms. And I'm, I should clarify that I'm not talking about prior moderation. That means, you know, before it even goes up. If Hillary Clinton had pointed out with proof that that story was false, should not Facebook have had the moral duty, if not the legal responsibility, to take it down? And should that not apply to anyone who is maligned in a similar way? Of course, here we come up against the aforementioned Section 230. So on the one hand, you have one actor who has absolute freedom of expression. On the other hand, a platform that has complete legal immunity. I just hope that US lawmakers who are reviewing Section 230 will see that the, at the rate the deluge of willful misinformation is growing, along with the polarization in America and the growth of conspiracy theories and all manner of, of groups, what is being endangered is American democracy itself. Now, to be fair, both Facebook and Twitter redeemed themselves by somewhat when they booted Donald Trump off their platforms for persistently repeating the big lie that the election was stolen from him. But this is a bit of a whack-a-mole strategy. What is needed is a fundamental relook at the law and a moderate middle road has to be found to address abusers. The American political scientist Francis Fukuyama proposed in a recent Foreign Affairs article an interesting idea. Create a layer of competitive middleware companies to which web platforms can outsource the job 
of moderating content. It's an idea well worth considering as the content moderation will then be at an arm's length. This is needed even more in non-English speaking developing countries such as in Africa where as a Guardian article put it, Facebook is the internet. While it is indispensable for the everyday life of many Africans, Facebook's stance on moderation has led not just to abuse, but also instances of violence and mayhem. In October last year, CNN reported that Facebook knew that its platform in Ethiopia was being used to incite violence, but it did not act. And indeed, there, there, had, there was violence. In Bangladesh, two incendiary posts on Facebook last year went viral, and all of a sudden, Muslims were attacking hundreds of Hindu homes and temples. In Myanmar, the Rohingyas are suing Facebook claiming that its algorithms, quote, amplified hate speech against the Rohingya people, unquote, and that, quote, it failed to invest in moderators. The case is still ongoing, but this was 2017 when, during the, 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 the violence against the Rohingyas. These cases raise two other areas of concern about the giant web platforms. The first is the rampant use of web robots, or bots they are called, to broadcast misinformation or inflammatory content to ensure that it goes viral. The next is algorithm-based targeting, which creates echo chambers of conspiracists, extremists, and other polarized groups. Once they discern an interest, the algorithms pummel you with more. Time does not permit me to, to elaborate on these concerns, uh, but there clearly needs to be guideposts on the use of such tech devices. The tech giants which derive billions in internet revenues need to work harder to find ways to stem the bad use of bots in the internet. My second concern has to do with scams, fraud, and cybercrime, which have become rampant on the internet. Rather than address each of these areas, scams, frauds, and cybercrime, I would like to use digital advertising as a case study to highlight the issues. Now, digital advertising on the internet is a huge, data-driven, highly automated marketing ecosystem with thousands of players. But this is no ordinary ecosystem. As one writer, Tim Huang, who wrote a book on the subject, put it, digital advertising is the beating heart of the business of the internet. And he added, it is impossible to think about the future of the internet without thinking about the future of 
digital advertising. Now, you have already seen how digital advertising powered the phenomenal growth of the tech giants. For them, their business is now almost wholly about digital advertising. For Google, 80% of their revenues are derived from this one source, according to their own 2020 annual report. For Facebook, it is a whopping 98%. Now, anyone who knows about risk management will know how huge a business risk this is. Their entire future is dependent on digital advertising. In its early years, Google anticipated only about 10 to 15% of their revenues would come from advertising. The rest was assumed to come from licensing of its search uh, technologies to other websites. According to Tim Huang, this was blown away by the torrent of market money generated by advertising. We saw recently how the shares of Meta, Facebook's parent company, plunged by 26% in a day and wiped out 230 billion of its market cap. 230 billion, yeah. One reason was that its ad revenues were hit by changes that Apple made to its tracking of users on its devices. This shows how the market's sensitivity is, how, how the market's sensitivity to their ad revenues is, in addition, of course, to the, their number of users. So let me state my main point. Of the 450 billion US dollars spent globally on digital advertising in 2021, 14% of it was ad fraud. 14% involving fake websites, which I will explain. Statista, which is a, a data, data company, estimates that ad fraud will hit 100 billion US dollars by 2023, or 17% of global digital advertising. Now, this is a colossal amount of fraud, 100 billion. The share is also growing, which means the problem is getting worse. So I want to share some light on where and how this fraud is happening so that we understand the governance issues. The marketplace, and I'm getting a bit technical here, marketplace where the internet demonstrates its true power is in what's called programmatic ad buying, ad being short form for advertisements. This is where advertisers can place orders to buy ad space, advertising space, from website owners through a computerized ad exchange that uses real-time bidding. What happens is, the moment a reader clicks onto a website, a signal is sent instantly to the ad exchange, the real-time bidding kicks in, and the highest bidder's ad is automatically uploaded to that website. The amazing thing is, this literally happens at the speed of light, before you can blink. It is truly a marvel of digital 
uh, of the digital revolution. Millions and millions of such transactions happen daily. In 2021, programmatic advertising in the US accounted for 90% of total spending on digital display advertising. The, op the other side is search, but this is display. So 90% of it is in this programmatic space. So you have a brilliant system, so where's the problem? The answer is, while the automation is brilliant, the rules of the game and the policing are not quite there. In other words, the governance is lacking. Now, according to data from 2017, I don't have updated numbers, 56% of all advertising dollars in the programmatic space, in this computerized ad buying, landed on fake websites, 56%. Now, what are these fake websites? Now, these are websites set up by fraudsters and crooks who make use of bots to create fake readers on their website. And they come to the ad exchange and they say, I've got this website, I've got a million readers. And they get the ads. All this audience traffic, they report, is what the trade calls non-human traffic. I mean, there are no real readers. So if an advertiser pays, say, $10,000 worth of advertising, less than half of that goes into genuine sites. The crooks with their fake websites take the rest. Now, a 2018 survey of ad buyers and agencies, and these are big buyers, you know, a million dollars and above, found that 37% of them cited ad fraud as the most negative aspect of programmatic ad buying. This is their number one worry or negative aspect. Now, you may ask, how come no one checks whether a site is genuine or fake? Remember, the internet is an open access system where anyone can create a website. All you need is an IP address and a domain name. And if you know how to write some code or you know somebody who knows how to write code, you can generate bots and clock up as much non-human traffic as you want and you can fool the automated ad buying system. Now, what I do find hard to understand is why this brilliant automated system is so easily fooled and why you can't stop it or why you can't track it. And why no one has found a way to shut out all these bad bots and non-human traffic. So this is clearly an area where more needs to be done by the industry players themselves. Now, so as of now, digital advertising is very much a buyer beware system. Unfortunately, many small companies in the long tail of advertisers who queue up to buy ads, and they account for 60% of the total advertising, the small long tail, go in with their eyes closed. They are the ones who lose money to the crooks. 
every intermediary in the ecosystem takes his cut, which you know, adds up to about 40% of the money that the advertiser spends, no matter where the advertising ends up in. So they get the cut, the crook takes his cut, and the, and the advertiser is the one paying for it. Now you see why, when no one is policing the system, the players themselves have little incentive to fix the problem of fraud. Frosters are now even copying websites of quality publishers who charge premium prices for their ads. This is known as domain spoofing. 20, in 2017, the Financial Times discovered that crooks were selling fake FT impressions as well as video inventory, which FT didn't even have. And the fake inventory was selling at 1.3 million US dollars a month, which the ad operations director of FT said is just jaw-dropping. The difference here is that not only did the advertisers get skimmed, the FT also lost money that it should have received. For completeness, I should add that some advertising, such as video advertising, are charged by the number of clicks. Not surprisingly, there's Click fraud has become a widespread practice, either using bots or armies of actually paid humans in a click farm. According to Adobe in 2018, 28% of all click traffic were from, quote, non-human signals. For the video ads, click fraud is 22%. So you can see easily that ad fraud flourishes because A, the sheer size of the digital advertising market, B, it is highly lucrative, C, it is easy money, and for the crooks, the crooks can get away with it. In 2018, the New York Times actually profiled a so-called entrepreneur who in 18 months of doing this, went from being on welfare and living with his father to buying a BMW and a house of his own. So to end my little case study, I would say this. If fraud in digital advertising was of the order of 1% to 2%, it could be written off as friction in the system. But when it gets to 20% and as high as 50% in the programmatic space, it is beyond unacceptable. And it is surely time for all players in the digital advertising ecosystem to get together, collaborate on doing more to fix this issue of fraud, which the ad buyers themselves, the big ad buyers themselves, say is their biggest unhappiness. This should not be left to the ad tech companies to solve, to fix. All players, ad buyers, website owners, digital measurement companies, etc., have to work together to develop effective solutions and set best, best practices for the industry. More can also be done to educate the long tail of small advertisers to be aware of some of the pitfalls of, of digital advertising. Now, 
so I, I've explained this in some detail just to, ex just to give you a, a, a real instance of where and how deep and rampant the current internet uh, 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 fraud is. Now, I can go on to talk about cybercrime in so many other areas, in banking, etc. I won't. Uh, there are a host of, in, in many areas, bigger problems than in digital advertising, but digital advertising was a little vignette that I know of, and I thought I will explain uh, uh, the scale of the, 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 the problem. And again, the problem is governance. How do you police it? What sort of rules? And if nobody does it, it is just going to get worse. So, I don't have the time to go into you know, cybercrime and cyber attacks, uh, which sometimes even involves state-sponsored uh, actors. Uh, but I'll be happy to take questions later uh, if there's time. Let me uh, move on to my third and concluding part of my lecture. I had initially wanted to review the new regulatory moves uh, affecting the internet that are afoot in the US, in, in the EU, and elsewhere. And I also wanted to review Singapore's early regulatory actions, such as our law on the prevention of online falsehoods and manipulation, or PUFMA, and also discuss ideas for the future for Singapore. But I've decided to take a step back and look at the broader issue of what exactly is the way forward for the global internet. For me, as I said, the issue is governance. And I don't mean regulation by governments, although this is surely a part of the challenge and the solution. What seems clear to me is that a broader collaborative approach is needed from all players. And I agree with those who say that this is one of the most pressing public policy issues of our time. I do not, of course, have all the prescriptions, but I can try and outline the issues and what the options might be. Some six years ago, sorry, let me just get it. Our, our foreign minister in 2016, Vivian Balakrishnan, gave what I thought was a thoughtful speech at a security conference. He was then also the minister in charge of the Smart Nation Initiative. And he spoke about this subject, to quote, the need to embark on deep policy reviews on very difficult topics, and one of them was the internet. This was 2016. And I'd like to quote him at some length. He said, you see, the problem is in the initial euphoric days of the establishment of the internet. There were many people who dreamt of a completely free and unregulated space. With absolute freedom to say anything, the ability to transact secretly across borders, and to mobilize people for any cause without interference or being watched by security agencies. This was the dream of some of the early pioneers of the internet. But I believe, this is Vivian Balakrishna, 
I believe there is a false dichotomy between the real world and the cyber world. I believe we actually only have one world, a, a technology-enabled world, and what goes on in cyberspace has a real impact on the real world. And the sooner we get to grips with these difficult policy issues, the better. Because, the need to, the, because there is a need to get the balance right. We actually live in a more unsettled world. Now, I agree fully with Dr. Balakrishna. You know, we only have one world. We must get the balance right. The sooner we deal with it, the better. And we live in troubled times. Now, I studied a 20, another 2016 report by an agency called the Global Commission on Internet Governance. And it was titled, One Internet. The headline of the summary read, the future of the internet hangs in the balance. And it confidently said, the internet as we know it will not be the internet of the future. So I thought, whoa, so what is the internet of the future? So I went on, read it, it was a good, good thick report. And it went to outline three possible future scenarios for the internet, from the worst case to the ideal. The worst case scenario, a dangerous and broken cyberspace. This is one where the internet breaks down under our watch, quote unquote. And the breakdown is brought about by a combination of malicious actions of criminals and inadvertent effects of government regulation of the internet. And what happens is people simply stop using the internet and the potential is lost. So that's the worst case scenario. Scenario number two, it's called stunted growth, unevil, uneven and unequal gains. Here, what happens is some users, and I'm quoting them, capture a disproportionate share of digital dividends, while others are locked out. But the world muddles on. The third scenario is the ideal scenario, and it's called broad acceptance, unprecedented progress. Adoption of new internet-enabled technologies such as driverless cars and blockchain. Government and industry act collaboratively across borders to manage the risks of online activity and ensure that the internet is open, secure, trustworthy and inclusive for everyone. Then it concludes by saying this, that this optimistic future can only be achieved if there is, and I quote, universal agreement to collectively develop a new social compact on the internet, about the internet. Now, after when I got to this point, I said, I'm afraid I'm not at all optimistic about any new universal social compact. 
just the geopolitics of it will scupper any attempt to achieve this. And leave alone the fundamental differences between those who believe, those whose constitutional bedrock is untrammeled freedom of expression, and those like Singapore who believe that freedom comes with some caveats and some restraints. And we haven't even got to those who will never let go of totalitarian control. So a new social compact is going to be very hard. If I were to guess, my guess would be that we would probably end up with a scenario that is a jumble of all three scenarios. Parts of the internet might be broken, but the world muddles along with unequal gains, and yet there will be adoption of driverless vehicles and blockchain and other internet-enabled technologies. What this unfortunately uh, means is that Singapore will have to chart its own way forward, guided by its own circumstances. And it, in doing this, it must strive to get what the writer called the maximum digital dividends through, and what I'm saying, through well-thought-out internet governance. Now, further guideposts which I would recommend are we need a balanced and collaborative approach to internet governance. And by this I mean not all done by government, but it must bring in industry and, and, and civil groups, etc. We need to build a society that is resilient to adverse internet influences. We can't be protecting people all the time. You need to be resilient. And thirdly, we need to stay focused on that ideal goal that was set out earlier of an internet that is open, secure, trustworthy, and inclusive for all our citizens and residents. This then is the challenge of internet governance as we face. Exactly how we do this is still up in the air, everywhere. And it, but as I said, it is urgent that we begin to address this as a country and as a society. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Daniel. For those watching the lecture on Facebook, please submit your comments and questions through the Facebook comment box. For our audience members here, please step up to the mic to ask your questions. May I now invite Dr. Carol Soon to start the Q&A session. Thank you, Patrick. Mm. Thank you for the lecture. Um, we welcome people who join us on Facebook to ask questions, and also we have you know, several members in the audience. So feel free uh, to pose your questions to Patrick. Um, just go to the mic. 
So perhaps I'll use um, mm. my privilege as a moderator to ask the first question. Sure. Uh, the main thrust of your lecture today really does look at the governance of cyberspace, of internet. Clearly, like what you mentioned earlier, um, when the internet was first built and launched and when it proliferated, I think essentially what underpinned the assumptions that many people had of the internet and its possible impact on society was a very utopic one. Right? Mm -hmm. One that believed that the internet would provide an equal playing field for different people, different groups, um, for marginalised political parties, for instance. And we have obviously seen in the past decades how that has not really worked out. Mm. And certainly in the past five years, when the problem of fake news, misinformation, disinformation became more evident, we saw the vulnerabilities of the internet. Mm -hmm. So you talked about regulation and you talk about governance. I think that there is general agreement in many parts of the community that regulation is quite important. That the space cannot be an unfettered free-for-all or else it will become a world, uh, wild, wild west that we see um, on the online space. And we can see how different countries are trying to, what you said earlier, find a middle way to regulating the internet. So closer to home, we see efforts made by um, Vietnam, Thailand, of course Singapore, like you alluded to. We have uh, recently, in the past three to four years, rolled out two laws. Um, we also see some attempts in South Asia and further away, Europe. I think it's complicated by two things. Um, number one is the complexity of the cyberspace and the rapid speed at which technology is advancing. And so regulation is always playing catch up. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the next big thing, which um, uh, everybody has been talking about, is metaverse. Right? But interestingly, as it's being built, people are already starting to pay attention to the kind of structures that need to be put in place mm -hmm. to protect the space and to govern the space, right? And this approach is very different from what used to be built first, regulate later. So I think the question on top of governance is what makes for sustainable governance, mm. right? Um, mm. What should the first principles be, be or maybe to distill it into, say, three key values that we should turn to when we want to think about how can we make the cyberspace a better space and a more equal space for all. So if I may ask you mm. um, to think and to pick three values for sustainable governance, mm. what would they be? Um, the first thing is I think it, it has to remain open, which is how it was first uh, developed. I'm not saying that it, you know, of course, the, the other extreme is, is China, which has said no World Wide Web for Chinese. You know, we don't want it. Uh, so it has to be open, right? So that's the first thing. The second part for me is uh, it has to be secure. That means bad actors, crooks, and you know, criminals come in, 
there has to be some policing. Because the moment they smell money, they will come. For sure, the crooks will come. And it's really, compared to the real world, the digital world is easy money. You know, you can just crack in and get, you know, come in. So sec security is, is an important uh, kind of feature. Um, the third thing I would say, which is related to security and being secure, is trust, trustworthiness. So I would say at least these three things, which is what I, I it, it, it's not original. You know, I, I've read it and I saw what the consensus among academics were. And I like these four. In fact, they've got four. Uh, uh, open, uh, secure, trustworthy, and the last one is inclusive. So it must, you, you must include everybody. You know, you don't want a system which is very bourgeois where only, you know, the educated, you know, the academics know, know how to get in and the rest of us don't, you know. So it's got to be sort of inclusive and let everybody come in, young, old, anybody who wants to come in. Uh, so those, those are the kind of areas, but it's easier said than done, you know, because you've got to uh, get people to agree on where the controls must be, why they need to police, and there has to be some surveillance, otherwise how do you police? And there are people who just don't agree with surveillance. Well, if you don't have any surveillance, then you don't have any police policing, you know. How, how do you how do you do that? So uh, it is just going to be a very difficult exercise to do, you know. And especially when there is no international, you know, consensus, you know. Actually, the internet is one of the few things which is was developed as a global product, a global service, with no governance. I mean, I, I, I give you, a, I give you a, an example. It's like, imagine air travel with no governance. You know, planes flying, landing all over the place. It's just not possible. You have to have a regulatory authority, you know, ICAO or, you know, deciding you look after this space, you look after that space, and, you know, and make sure everybody's well-trained and, Planes land and look at look at how beautifully it's it's managed. You've got thousands of flights flying all over the place, very well managed. You know, a few crashes, but generally very well organized. But the internet was, as Vivian pointed out, was invented by you know dreamers who just said, no, 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 this is open to everybody, no need for governance. You know, I in one of the, the, the papers that I read, I, I saw uh, uh, Tom Berners-Lee, the guy who invented the, the, the internet, who's actually about my age. Though. And he believed in must be open. So he, when he invented the, the World Wide Web, he didn't, get, he didn't patent anything. His HTML was free for everybody. You can just put up your website, just use my software, put up your website. So it's just wonderful. It's such a, you know, a, a, a generous thing to do. He now believes also that uh, maybe we need a little bit of regulation. You know, didn't quite say exactly what, but 
So I think people are coming round to it. Uh, but I think large parts of our population will have to be brought around to it because there are lots of people who love the anonymity of the internet. You just go in there and say what you like and shoot your mouth off and, you know, and nobody, nobody knows who you are. You, know, you, get, you get to say your piece and they love it. You know? So it's going to be very hard to pull back once you have a free and open you know, uh, system. So. Mm -hmm. So I asked for three values and you gave me four. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. So open, secure, trustworthy, mm -hmm. and inclusive, yeah. right? So um, we had a question from a Gunter Dufri who's joining us online. So his point, his question was actually related to your last and fourth value on inclusion, right? So um, he asked, what exactly does an inclusive internet mean to you? Um, how should or how would that look like? And mm -hmm. Who are those who are excluded? What do we do with them? Mm. So I think you kind of briefly touched mm. on mm. that a little bit. Would you like to say no, more? I mean, actually, inclusive is just anybody who wants to get in can get in. That's mm. it. You know, it's as, as simple as that. Mm. You shouldn't exclude anybody, uh, uh, whether young or old. I mean, let's say you know, if you if you if you have a, a system where a ten-year-old cannot come in, that's not inclusive. You know. So you want, you want it to be open to, to, to everybody. But if a 10-year-old comes in, there must be, the parents must be able to know what to switch on and switch off. But the 10-year-old can come in. So I, I just use inclusiveness in the common meaning of the word. Nothing more than that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, rich, poor, you know, uh, anybody you know, uh, should be able to use the internet, which is happening now, you know, it is quite an inclusive, you know, thing, if you, if you, if you, if you go around Singapore, you, everybody is on their handphones, you know, and, uh, and uh, surfing the web here and there, you know, talking to people, Skyping, all kinds of men. So that's, that's what I mean, inclusive. And I think the future internet uh, should remain that way. Mm. I think I picked up from your response, and I think it's an important point, that we, uh, when we talk about inclusiveness, it's not just access anymore. Mm. Um, because increasingly, we see less and less issues, not that there is no issue, uh, when it comes to say, having physical access to technology or the internet. Um, I think the mobile phone is one big contributor, right? Because of its low cost and its small size, mm. it has basically made um, access to the internet a lot easier. But I think increasingly, and you hinted at that, inclusion really is also about um, people's ability and competency in using the technology, mm. right, to, um, to enhance their economic mobility and their social mobility. Mm. So going back to regulation, okay, uh, we have um, two questions here on um, different countries' approach. Uh, one is by uh, Gaimin. So she's mm. asking what your views on China's actions are when it comes to regulation. So do mm. you see China's regulation as a genuine attempt at achieving good internet balance? Mm. Or do you see mm. China's regulatory attempt as a draconian regulation, as the West likes mm. to put it? Mm. Um. It's quite a recent uh, uh, firewall, 
this is after Xi Jinping came in. The problem I, I see is how do you open up, you know? Uh, you know, it will be very difficult for a future leader to open up the internet for China. You know, it, you know it, it, everybody will say, oh, this is like, you know, Gorbachev trying to achieve Glasnost and Perestroika, you know, and then after that, the whole country fell apart, you know. So it's going to be very hard to unwind, easy to, to put up the firewall, but very hard to unwind, you know. So, so I, 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 I don't know how, I mean, he's, in, he's of course entitled to it and because the internet has all the negatives that, that I, I mentioned. I didn't mention things like pornography and cybercrime and cyber attacks, a whole bunch of stuff, right? Uh, and they decided, enough, we will just have our own internet, you know? Within China, I've got 1.4 billion people, and you just you want shopping, you just go to my my own internet, you know. At home. Um, so, th this is why the internet governance is going to be so difficult, you know. Every you know the Chinese have one view, the Americans have another view, the Europeans have a slightly different view. How, how do we, you know? And if you go back to my analogy of of air travel, you know, when you have countries which have such different views about air travel, how do you go from A to B? How do you fly from A to B? You know, when you suddenly go this way, oops, you've got a different regime. You go that way, you know, you can, you can land anytime. This one, you know, so it's just very difficult. This is such a difficult exercise. I, I you know, I don't, I don't have a, a, a view on whether Chinese is draconian or not. I'm just saying that you know, the government looked at it and uh, he, the Chinese government believes that, listen, security, stability is far more important than access to the World Wide Web. You know, uh, they can, I mean, the Chinese are very, very digitally savvy. They are far more savvy than us. You know, they, they never carry cash, they pay everything online, they, you know, use their phones. So he's achieved it, you know, and all power to him. It's just that, you know, to get into the World Wide Web, you've got to use a VPN and, you know, come around the other way, you know. Is that good for their country? I don't know. I, I you know, they have to decide that, that for themselves. I, my own view is that I think it's better to be open. Mm -hmm. But I, I see great difficulty for China to have, you know, op to open up. You know, they can do it slowly maybe. But again, it won't be inclusive. You can't, you can't sort of open it up to everybody at one time. When you say slowly, it means you know, certain segments can, can, can view it. It's, it's very hard to, to unwind that. Mm -hmm. That's just my, my thoughts. No, no, no great wisdom in what I'm saying. I'm just giving you my, mm. my, my views on that. Mm -hmm. So that's China. Um, coming home to Singapore, we have a question. Um, should in your opinion, should the Singapore government also roll out regulations against the big tech companies? What do you think are the pros and cons mm. for a small city-state like us? Mm. Uh, I think, let me have a preamble. We do have certain regulations in place. So you mentioned the POFMA, Protection from Online Falsehoods and Manipulation Act. Um, that 
among various provisions, uh, enable the government to issue targeted corrective directions as well as general um, corrective directions. And mm. we have seen that used on uh, tech platforms such as Facebook. Right? So, um, what, are, what is your opinion? Mm. I mean, should the Singapore government uh, roll out mm. more regulations against big tech companies? And mm. given our economic status as a hub, what do you think are mm. the pros and cons? Yeah, so that, that is a challenge. Um, uh, how, you see, the thing is, you know, when they are, as I said in my, my lecture, they are global companies, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so PUFMA was a very interesting uh, a test. Whether if you told Facebook, take it down, whether they would take it down. And if they don't take it down, what do you do? You, do you, are you going to say, okay, I'm going to shut you down? And then all the rest of Singapore will say, what? You know, just over a small thing, I can't go use my Facebook. So it's a challenge, real challenge. But they've done it, they, they, it selectively. Uh, so it is, a, it is a good experiment on whether or not individual countries can regulate uh, uh, global uh, platforms. When Australia tried to negotiate uh, uh, payments for their newspapers, mm -hmm. they responded very negatively. Initially. Initially. And then they settled. So it's, it's not a given that they will just roll over and, and do what you have to say. They may say, I'm not doing, you know, and uh, I'll just shut down. You know, and then you've got a population that says, hold on, I need my whatever, Google, my Facebook, my, you know, whichever platform, you know. So it is not an easy thing, you know, to do. But I come to the view that, you know, if you have to um, make it secure and there's just so much of uh, crime, you know, online, you can't just say, oh, I can't do anything. They're all global. I think you've got to find a way to, to regulate it, mm. you know, in a, in a balanced way is what I'm saying. Don't, don't you know, and uh, try to bring in, bring the, the, the platforms in, talk to them and see how, you know, we can deal with, with, with the problems, you know, and then find a solution to, I mean, I, I just take, you, you take, say, uh, say our online banking, you know, the, the scams. Uh, You've got to bring in the players, you've got to bring in the telcos, you've got to bring in the thing, and then say, look guys, you know, there's a whole bunch, of, there's, a, there's a syndicate. I don't know how many phone calls you get. I just keep getting phone calls all the time. Oh, Ministry of Health, I just keep getting them. So there is a huge syndicate going on, you know. So we, and, but you know, our home affairs fellows are, you know, uh, really going after them, you know. Uh, they were quite quick to catch the OCBC uh, 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 scammers. So you do need that kind of, you know, uh, uh, policing, to use a tough word. But, and that policing has to be on the internet as well. So I am open to having, you know, a bit of surveillance. Mm. And um, if you, you can't take a bit of surveillance, then you deserve to be scammed. One day the scam scammer will come to come at you, you know. So that's that's my long answer. Yeah. So so you mentioned in your lecture and towards the end um, in um, 
your vision, you know, or your take on what needs to be done, you um, spoke about taking a collaborative approach mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. governing the internet. Mm -hmm. And I think you just mentioned that in mm -hmm. your past response. So um, one way that's being done right now or being explored is what some researchers are calling the middle way, right? Mm -hmm. Where governments um, work closely with tech platforms um, to come up with guidelines that are suited for individual country contexts, mm. right, given the very different values and ideologies that underpin different societies. Mm. So I think that could be mm. a possible road to take in mm. collaborating, working together to make the internet a better and more egalitarian mm. space for all. Yeah. Um, before I round up this part of th th this set of questions on regulation, I'm just wondering if anyone. Um, in this room have questions or comments for Patrick? Okay, so just the last question uh, on regulation, because <coughs> mm. I want to ask you something else. Mm. Uh, so it was Andrew, right? Andrew is really quite concerned when you talk about regulation. Regulation that benefits everyone and not privilege a few people. So given the dynamics, the power dynamics behind regulation making, how do we ensure that regulations benefit all rather than privilege the powerful few? Um, I, I don't see that as, uh, as uh, an issue in, in Singapore. I really don't. I, I can't think of any regulation that benefits the powerful and not not and not the few you know mm -hmm. i really uh, benefit the few and not everybody i think our laws are quite plain you know uh, this is the law you break it i don't care who you are you, you know you, you will be hauled up so i'm not quite sure i understand what his mental frame is when he asks us that question um, so I, I, you know, I think that if, if a law that is, if, if any minister, be it Shanmugam or whoever, puts up a law like that, that benefits the few, I don't think it will pass, you know. I think he, even the PAP MPs will tell him, hey, hello, this can't, this is not, this is not the kind of laws that we've had all along for the last, you know, 50 years, you know. So I, I really think that that's maybe you know more of a uh, an intellectual worry than a, a real worry if i may be honest mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. so um, we have a henry salamat who mm -hmm. made quite an interesting suggestion so he said that a common point of agreement for most people would be the need to protect our young people our mm -hmm. youth mm -hmm. from the harms of the internet mm -hmm. so do you think that this would be a good starting point for discussions mm. on governance and regulation. And what thoughts do you have on what can be done to protect our young people? Yeah. No, no, that's when, when I say secure, security is one, I, I actually do have in mind the young. There is already now, you know, websites that, are, that worry me, you know, um, you know, uh, websites like Roblox, for example, 
you know, this where young people go in and then you get an avatar, you know, and then you go in there and then and the young people can buy a pair of jeans using real money, you know, or crypto, but young people don't have crypto. But they're actually transacting on the the early metaverse already. So Roblox is going to be something like your 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 metaverse. And uh you know, they, they're buying things, dressing up their own avatar. You know, you, 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 you go in there and you put your photo and then they will do an avatar around your photo. And then you go in, you know, you suddenly say, oh, you know, that you pass a, a shop and then you see, oh, I want to get my hair done. And you go into the shop and you pay real money for some virtual fellow to do up your avatar's hair. And then you come out, lost maybe a couple of bucks. I mean, it's just, and young fellas doing it, they are paying. So I'm saying that there's no regulation of this. You know, who, who, I mean, I don't mind if Roblox themselves say these are the rules, you know, and uh, I'll give you a bill every month or something like that. I mean, there's nothing. So I, I worry about the, the young. And I think there is, if you, if you want to find an area where there's consensus, it's the young. I think they, they won't, whether whichever side of the political fence you're on, if you come up with rules to protect the young, I think they, there will be agreement. Mm. So yes, I, I agree with him. You know, uh, I, I was just told yesterday about, by a good friend of mine how uh, uh, he knows of somebody who went into the NFT market, you know, to buy and sell NFTs. And uh, it, it, he, he said it was hairy, how much money you're talking about, you know, and, and it's not, you know, uh, peanuts, you know, it's, it's big money. You take a photo of your cat, you put it up, you know, then you sell and then you buy this. Oh boy, I tell you, it's just amazing. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So uh, I, I worry about the kids, yeah. Mm, so yeah. perhaps another important first principle when thinking about um, governance or legislation is um, whom are we trying to protect, mm. right? Start, start with that very important fundamental question. Um, I would like to move away from regulation and governance um, of platforms and kind of connect today's, some of the points that you made today with um, your first lecture that mm -hmm. you delivered just recently. Um, well, looking at the audience, right? We have talked about platforms on one end, but of course, the other very big stakeholder is the audience, the users of the internet. Um, during your first lecture, you talked about the need, uh, using the example of the Singapore Media Group, the need to invest in technology and talent Right, to strengthen the mm -hmm. media industry, to mm -hmm. make it more sustainable. So I would say that talent and technology are very tangible assets. Um, there is also a very important asset that's not so tangible, and that's trust, audience trust. Mm. If we look at the latest Reuters digital news report that was published last year, so the next one should come out soon, it seems that things bode quite well um, for news media. So, for example, one of the key findings is trust in news in general has gone up. Mm. And the other finding is 
the trust gap between news in general and news from aggregated environments, meaning news from social media, has widened. Right? Mm -hmm. How do you think, coming back to media, uh, how, can, what, what, how do you think media can maintain its lead mm. in the trust gap? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you just have to make trust one of your you know, principal values. You know, and, and make sure that you don't do things that damage the trust. So that, in fact, much of what I'm saying about the internet also holds for the, for the, for the media, you know, uh, for the legacy media, mm. you know. I, trust, when lost, is very hard to, to regain, you know. So, so you've got to be factual, you've got to make sure that your, your, your reporters, you know, behave ethically, you got to, so you you got to make that a value of the organization, and that's what we're trying to do, you know, in in the thing. So trust is is going to be the the you know the I, I, everybody's talking about it. The PM talked about it, etc. You know, it is the common coin. You know, you've got to make it, and if you don't live it, uh, it just disappears. You know, so I feel that uh, I'm not too troubled about the gap. You know, because we are quite serious about it. Uh, we want to be accurate. You know, you want to correct your, your mistakes uh, so that people know that it appears in the Straits Times, it must be true, mm. you know, and it's factual. And we're getting there, you know. Uh, people are, believe our stories when we report. You know? So, uh, so that's, that's, that's a good thing. I'm happy to hear that. I haven't read that Reuters uh, survey yet, but... Uh, uh, you're, you're right, trust, I mean, apart from talent and, and technology, if you lose the trust, you're, you're in deep trouble. Mm. Yeah. Right. So we have um, just five minutes left, mm -hmm. and uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to ask one last question. Mm -hmm. We talk about, you talk about the cyberspace, right? Um, Another very important feature of the cyberspace is the fragmentation. Uh, and fragmentation happens because people generally have the freedom right, to seek out different information sources and go to different websites that they want to visit. Mm -hmm. And the fact is the internet's natural infrastructure allows new monopolies to form very, very naturally. Uh, and it is a place where we see how the winner takes most phenomenon play out very, very clearly, where the biggest sites, the biggest platforms attracts most of the eyeballs and most of the traffic. Mm -hmm. So linking this again back to the news industry, um, because clearly the media industry, the news industry is more than just legacy media or traditional media. Right. Increasingly, we see how new players or entrepreneurial media, media playing a very important part in different societies. So for instance, in the context of Australia, new players, media entrepreneurs um, play a very important part and fill the void that's created in what some academics have talk, talked about being um, news deserts in Australia, right? Parts or communities that are not well served by legacy media. And similarly, in many other societies, small media players play the very important part of providing alternative 
perspectives. So what are your thoughts on how can we encourage and nurture independent, smaller players? Okay. Um, you know, uh, uh, for local news, you know, city news, in many countries, there is government support. Just so that you know, small communities are well served by, their, by, by newspapers. And most of them have died. Many of them have closed, right? Because they were bought up by big, big uh, groups. And then they found that when, when it became unprofitable, they started closing down. Uh, so there is no, I, I, I have no uh, um, uh, sort of in principle, you know, disagreement with smaller independent newspapers, you know, being funded, mm. whether by government or by, by, by trusts or whoever, you know. Uh, because, yeah, you do need to have that. So, you know, let's say you want to have a Torpaio, you know, news. And somebody wants to start a newspaper for Torpaio, you know, and he's a professional journalist. He's quite serious about it. He's got a business plan. And if he wants some funding, in principle, I, I think that's a good thing, mm. you know, that you, because as a newspaper man, uh, I, I do want people to, to, to read the news, you know, because it is important to know what's going on, you know, and, 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 and be aware. Mm. So, uh, so that, that, to me, anything that promotes, you know, reading, current affairs, etc., is a good thing. So I have no issue with that, you know. I'm just saying that there must be some standards, Mm. You know, it cannot be anybody. It must be a professional uh, outfit, uh, trained professional journalist. Uh, he understands what professional journalism is, uh, so that, and then on that basis, you can you can have you can promote them. And I, I'll give you a, a, a story. I, I got into serious trouble one day. When uh, I gave a, a, a speech at a world at, at a newspaper conference, and then I was interviewed by a website, you know, and this guy interviews me, and uh, it was during the time of the Sarangoon Road uh, uh, riots, you know, and he interviewed me, and he put it up, and my daughter calls me from London and said, "Dad, did you actually say this?" I said, "What? I'm going to read it." Lo and behold. He put, he quoted me in quotes, right? So I said, okay. Called him up. And I said, listen, you know, you quoted me saying this. Can you and, uh, show me where I said this? I mean, do you have a record of it? Because I can't, I couldn't have said this. And I don't think I said this. And he said, oh, I, I, didn't, I don't have any notes. And I said, do you have a record? He said, no. Then I said, how did you manage to quote me five paragraphs of me. He said, oh, I have a good memory of what you said. And I thought, holy moly, this guy, where did he come from? Which, where did he go and train to be a journalist? So he actually just sat there and said, oh, I remember you saying this, and he put it in quotes. And I said, sorry, mate, that's just not professional. You cannot put words into my mouth and put in quotes. So I had to call his boss and I said, hey, excuse me, where did this fellow learn his journalism? And he didn't last very long. So there are untrained 
you know, people who think that journalism is very easy. I just talk to you now. I remember what you said. I go back and say, oh, Carol soon said this, quote. You know, I, that's not professional journalism. So I'm saying that the people who want to start the Topayo News, etc., must have must know what, what journalism is, you know. Otherwise, the Topayo News will just simply take photos of people here, there, and, you know. So I think there must be some standards, okay. I, I'm not trying to be... Uh, uh, you know, elitist or anything. I'm just saying this is a profession, mm. you know, journalism. And there must be some standards of what you can do and what you can't do, what you don't do, you know, so that, you know, you, you are professional. Mm. So I, I would say a lot of the, 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 the social media, you get people just hammering away without checking whether what is true, what is not true, did you check your facts, make sure you're factual. So simple things like fact-checking you must do. You know, you can't just say somebody called me and told me, oh, this fellow jumped from the window and you just report it. You know, so, so I worry when people say, oh, you know, we must support everybody to, you know, I think there must be some standards. So that's my long answer. Well, thank you, Patrick. I yeah. think we hear you loud and clear. Support yeah. can be given, but yeah. there should be some standards yeah. um, that guide the business mm. right, and how news is made. Um, well, thank you so much. Mm. Uh, we have actually Excellent. gone past the time that we were given. Thank you. Um, thank you for sharing with us your thoughts on internet governance and also proposing you know, what are some of the key values that should underpin sustainable governance. So thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Soon and Mr. Daniel. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your views on the event. Please click our link on the Facebook feed to submit, submit your feedback. Mr. Patrick Daniel's third and final lecture will take place two weeks from now on the 14th of March. Details will be on our website and IPS Facebook page. We hope to see you then. Thank you all for attending today's lecture. Have a good evening ahead. <laughs>